We're in John chapter 7, verse number 43. John chapter 7, verse 43 says, There arose a division in the multitude because of him. Everybody say Jesus. And some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on them. The officers therefore came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, Never has a man spake like this or spoken this way. And the Pharisees therefore answered him and said, Are you also led astray? Have any of the rulers believed on him or have any of the Pharisees believed on him? But this multitude that does not know the law are accursed. Everybody say Jesus. Ruffling feathers. That's what he did best. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your word. Father, I pray this morning your word will be anointed. Open up our ears and our eyes in a spiritual manner, our hearts, Father, to be able to receive and understand the word that you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys may be seated. So we step into the theater of God's word this morning via John chapter 7 towards the end of the chapter. And there is a divisive conversation that is being had. They are trying to figure out a way that they can trap Jesus according to the laws we just read in verse number 49. Verse 50 says, Nicodemus said unto them, Nicodemus being the one that came to him before in John chapter 3, if you want to read that. Does our law judge a man without first hearing him and knowing what he does? And they answered and said to him, are you also of Galilee? Search and see if any prophet arises out of Galilee. And then went every man unto his own house and we go into John chapter 8. So you see the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes having a conversation. They are fed up with Jesus. Completely fed up. Why are they so fed up? Why are they so upset? Is it because Jesus was going around town hugging too many people? Was it because he was going around town being so super nice? Was it because he was going around town and not in any relation to what we talked about this morning, but just doing good deeds for people or things of that nature? Why, why is it that they were so upset? It doesn't have anything to do with he did plenty of good things. They weren't even against people performing miracles, so to speak, as he did. Of course, they weren't going to get upset that he was being nice to people at times when he was. Why were they so upset? Why were they so upset? They were upset because everything that he did and everything that he said carried such power and such authority behind it that the people were starting to see through the charade of the Pharisees, see through the charade of the Sadducees, and look straight into the heart of Jesus Christ and believe in him as the Messiah, and he was stripping the religious hierarchy of their power, and he wasn't taking it necessarily by force, but it was being handed to him by the very people that the religious organizations were trying to rule and had done so well ruling for so long. Everybody say religion. Religion is not the answer. You know what these people had? These Pharisees and these Sadducees? They had a rigid standard of law. Rigid standard of law. I need one of my leaders to figure out how we make it a little brighter. It just seems like super dark, especially on this side. Is that just me? 
Is it too dark? Okay. Oh, that's the wrong way. Maybe it's just me. Don't worry about it. They had a rigid standard of laws, and uh, their application of these laws and their ability to dictate these laws to the community kept them in control and kept them in power. Everybody say religion. That's what religion is based on. Religion is based on laws. Yes? Religion is based on legalism. Yes? Religion has the ability and legalism has the ability to make a decent human being truly believe in something that deep down in their heart they would never believe in if they had the ability to contemplate it outside of the legal system that it's inside of, so to speak. We'll see that here before we get to the end of the message. It's the it's it's legality and it's law, ironically enough. That causes people to hate each other so much. Why do the people of Iran hate the people of Israel to such a degree that they hate each other? Do they not like the way each other looks? They don't like the way they act. They don't like the cuisine. They don't like the landscape. What is it they don't like? They don't like that the other one doesn't agree with the way they see things. They don't like that they have a certain standard of law, maybe Sharia law, whatever the law is over there in Iran, and that the people of Israel don't follow that law. And the people of Israel are not very happy that the people of the surrounding regions around them don't follow their democratic law or their Jewish law. The church down the street tends to not like the other church down the street because the denominational name is different. And the name is different because that name is a abbreviation for the legal standards that that church has. So the Church of Christ doesn't like the UPC because the UPC uses instruments in their worship. Do you understand how ridiculous that is? You see Jesus Christ walking around on the earth, God in the flesh, understanding that he is only here to help people and having to walk around looking behind his shoulder because the, who, who knows what person in the crowd is going to want to stone him to death for no reason. He loves everybody. Most of the people hate him. He came here to help everybody, but there's a faction of people that want to kill him. He's spitting in the mud. He's giving people their eyesight back. He's laying hands on deaf people. He's raising folks from the dead. He's trying to help people out of their decrepit situation. He's saying, you know what? Forget about everything and just love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, strength, and soul. Love your neighbors yourself. Let's do this thing. Dies on the cross. Tortured halfway to death, all the way to death if God didn't live inside of him. Hangs there. And forgives the people that did it just so the people that claim that they have found him and received him into their hearts can hate each other because they use musical instruments. God bless America. How did we get to that point? How does a decently minded human being that calls themselves a Christian look down the street and decide they don't like the other Christians because they have an instrument and they're worship? That is not reasonable. That is not okay. It's not them doing it. It's the legal standard that's been built into them. They haven't even had the ability to really think about it because they don't think they're allowed to think about it. 
Because if they even start to think about it, then they're denying the law of their own denomination. And if they don't follow after that law, they might get excommunicated. They might lose their spot. And they're not even sure if they're saved because their salvation is based on that legal system. The Baptists don't like the Methodists because the Methodists can dance. Not that they can dance, but they're allowed to dance. And the the Methodists don't like the Baptists because they don't follow their methodology. And so many people don't like the Catholics because of everything they do. And the Catholics don't like so many other people because they don't follow after their rigid legal system. And we're all sitting around and and I'm the first person to to point at the hierarchy and tell you what's wrong with all of these different denominations, their labels and whatever. But I am not going to turn around and condemn somebody because they're Catholic or condemn them because they're Baptist or decide to hate a whole group of people because they have that label on them, because that doesn't make an ounce of sense. When I follow a God that died for everybody and said, put away your differences and just love your neighbor as yourself. Why, in God's name, do we hate when we claim to follow the God who is love? It's legalism. It's religion. So they are plotting to try to catch Jesus according to their law. Remember, we just read, they just said, How can we catch him breaking our law? Verse number one of John chapter eight says, Jesus went into the Mount of Olives and early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came unto him and he sat down and he taught them. Everybody say the temple. What I want to teach you this morning, the title of the message is written in the earth. Probably. Um, The probably doesn't refer to what's written in the earth. You're about to hear a story where Jesus is presented with a legal issue and he kneels down and he writes in the dust and it doesn't say what he writes in it and it baffles everybody and the people that want to kill this woman decide they don't want to leave and it's all this crazy mystery and I think it's very, very provable and we put something together a few years ago that show, I think, pretty definitely what he wrote and it's cool to see what he wrote because it's in the Bible and it it definitely is in there and you can definitely begin to prove it and that's what I wanted to show you today based on, uh, for a totally different reason. But I, I don't know if we're going to have time, um, but I can show you some of it. The point isn't, isn't, to, isn't to know what he actually wrote. That's just cool to know. But the point is what it meant. So we'll get there if we can. Um, everybody said the temple? Yes, you did. Verse number three. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman taken in adultery and set her in the midst. They said unto him, teacher, this woman has been taken in adultery in the very act. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say of her? And this they said, trying him that they might have whereof to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground. So they did not bring this woman caught in adultery because in their heart of hearts, they thought they were going to rid the area of some type of evil. They didn't care one ounce about her life, whether she was going to live or die. They did this purely to tempt Jesus and try to find him inadequate of applying the Jewish law in the right manner so that they could then not only stone her, but maybe stone him. This is all about death. And it surrounds a God, the God, who is all about life. And it's like there's a line in the sand, no pun intended. And on one side... There's life. On the other side, there's death. And these people choose death. I don't, I don't understand it. But in a small way, sometimes we do the same thing. 
Now Moses commanded us to stone such, what do you say? And this they said, trying him, they might have whereof to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger he wrote on the ground. When they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said, He that is without sin among you, let him cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground. And they, when they heard it, what he said, he was without sin among you. They went out one by one, beginning from the eldest even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman where she was in the midst. And Jesus lifted up himself and said unto her, Woman, where are they? Did no man condemn thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn thee. Go thy way from henceforth and sin no more. Beautiful story. Um, I think the popular rendition of what happened here that you'll hear at maybe a lot of churches, and um, it's fine, you know, <clears throat> sort of, is uh, that what Jesus took the law that was so sacred to these people, and remember, he's one of these people, he's Jewish, and set it aside and discarded it in place of pure grace. And that preaches pretty good if you don't know much about the Bible. But if you know enough to know that Jesus proclaimed that he was not going to do away with one jot or one tittle until all be fulfilled, that he would never set aside the law, that the book of Hebrews, far beyond many years after this gospel of John was written, proclaims that no man can lightly set aside the law of Moses. If you understand everything else that Jesus did, he never set aside the law. He always addressed the law. And he corrected people in their thinking about the law. When they approached him about the Sabbath and things that he did, he didn't say, you know what? Forget the Sabbath. That was so year 1200 or whatever. I don't know. Forget the Sabbath. That's not in anymore. Nobody cares about that. We're going to take the Sabbath and we're going to replace it with grace. And then they would say, well, what is grace? Well, grace means you do whatever you want and God is good. No more law, no more Sabbath, no more anything. Just uh, he wouldn't have gotten very far. Not what he did. He said, you don't understand the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Man was not created for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created for man. So, yes, we're going to honor the Sabbath. But how many of you, if one of your sheep were to fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, would decide I'm not going to save that sheep because it's Saturday? He's trying to let them understand the law is not supposed to operate that way. You don't just let somebody die because it follows your legal system. That's not what it was about. It's about having some kind of standard so people just don't go crazy and massacre each other. But it wasn't so that you would live by that standard and underneath a legal pretense massacre everybody. That doesn't make any sense. So he didn't ever do away with the law. He addressed the law. And he said that he wouldn't do away with the law until all be fulfilled, didn't he? So you can't just replace it. In fact, if you want to get down to the nitty gritty, he kind of made it worse. Because he said in the Old Testament, if a man, it's interesting that this was one of his examples, if a man were to commit adultery, so on and so forth, what happened to him? But underneath grace in the New Testament, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, that's harder. Right? It's much harder to not look at somebody because many of us have seen somebody and went, oh, nope, can't do that. 
Thought about it for maybe two seconds too long. Can't do that. Especially if you've ever driven down I-45 or been to a movie. So you really like make an effort. Guys, can I get an amen, please? Jesus. <laughs> um, I'm, I don't know how, how women operators think, but I'm, I'm not alone on that. In the Old Testament, thou shalt not kill. Right? In the New Testament, if you even have aught in your heart against your brother for no reason, that's harder. And then he goes on to say, and by the way, all those other ones that are kind of easy to do, if you've broken one, you've broken them all. Good Lord. That makes us all complete sinners. That's not really easier. That's harder. So he was not in favor of just taking something that was hard and replacing it with something that was easier. He's in favor of righteousness. He's in favor of salvation. He's in favor of overcoming. He's in favor of redemption. But that is not exempt from the covenant that his father built in the Old Testament. I'm sorry, I'm taking way too long. Some um, very important things to understand about the Jewish law before we get into the actual message. Um, When they say they brought the woman before him, and said she was caught in the act of adultery. Moses' law says that we should stone her to death right here in front of everybody. Right here in front of everybody they're doing this. So Jesus put on the spot, and they say, so what do you say? Well, it's kind of universally accepted within Christianity that that is really what Moses said in the Old Testament. Have you ever checked it out? (coughs) Have you ever actually read it? It's very interesting that in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, that's not true at all. Here's the closest they can get. Leviticus chapter 20, verse number 10. Says the man that commits adultery with another man's wife. Even he that commits adultery with his neighbor's wife. The adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Here we have a scripture where two people are caught and two people are punished. And it is indicative that the woman is somebody's wife. You know why it's indicative that the woman is somebody's wife? Because it was a patriarchal community and they still had the ability to have multiple wives and concubines. So if a man went out and slept with a woman that was not his wife, he was not necessarily committing adultery because he could make her his other wife tomorrow, which is part of the law of the Old Testament. If you're caught sleeping with somebody that's not your wife, you have the option to get married or get stoned. Most people got married. Most people. Some people had been married and they're like, you know what? No. (laughs) Just a joke. Um, Sorry about that. So that was not really breaking the law necessarily on his part. I'm sure there would be some unhappy people, but you got to, we live in the year 2013 in America. And if you're a woman, you don't even think about the idea that you wouldn't be able to say something about that. Of course, your husband does something like that. I mean, you're more than justified and being angry but back then it wasn't really the case very patriarchal and she wasn't really even allowed to open her mouth if he decided that he was going to make it right and and have another wife or whatever right for that place and time which really god was trying to get them away from that a long time ago but they still legally did that so two things the woman had to be somebody's wife which this is not declared in john chapter 8 that she is and the man that she was having adultery caught in adultery with has to be there as well as one of the witnesses that this happened. So they bring this woman, the man that she supposedly was with is not there. 
And there's no indication that she's married. If she was, her husband needs to be there. So they just threw her down without any testimony or witnesses. They said she was caught in the act, but they had nobody come forth and give testimony. They, 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 blah, blah, blah. That was tongue. That they saw her. That was not tongue. That was a joke. That they saw her get caught in the act. And there is a law that runs all the way throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. You can read a thousand times that the, the Bible declares, let everything be established out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. Two or three witnesses, two or three witnesses. In fact, we're going to read that in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 16. No, we're not. Deuteronomy 17, verse 6. Deuteronomy 17, verse 6 says, At the mouth of two witnesses, or three witnesses, shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. Out of the mouth of two witnesses, or three witnesses, shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. At the mouth of one witness, shall he not. And then the next verse, number 7 the hands of the witnesses shall be the first upon him to put him to death. And afterwards, the hands of the people, so they shall put the, evil away, uh, put the evil away from among you. So it was very scriptural that Jesus stood up and said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. What we don't know is what sin he was talking about. We will know here in a minute. So if they are going to throw this woman down, supposedly caught in adultery, right in front of him, then he's going to say, he writes something in the sand, and then he stands up and he says, now let him who is without sin cast the first stone. What sin might he be talking about? Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 16, if a false witness rises up against any man to testify against him that is wrong, then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges, which shall be in those days, and the judges will make diligent inquisition, and, and yeah, and behold, if the witness is a false witness and has testified falsely against his brother, then shall you do unto him as he had thought to do unto his brother. So shalt thou put the evil away from among you. In the nutshell, what he's saying is, if anybody bears a false witness and it's a death penalty case, then that false witness will be put to death as well. So here's this woman caught in adultery, supposedly. No testimony, not two or three witnesses, no husband, no man present to fulfill the uh, Leviticus where Moses wrote they should be put to death. And they said, he, she should be put to death according to Moses' law. False statement. What do you think should happen? He writes something in the dust and he stands up and says, now let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Because now in order to pick up a stone and cast it, they're testifying that they're bearing witness. And it's going to be a false witness. And when it's false, they get stoned instead of her. So a whole different situation than just taking the law, sweeping it aside and saying, we're just going to do grace. Nope. Totally fulfilling the law. Let's go to Numbers chapter 5. I think we're going to start in verse 13. Give me a second because I didn't write this down. Verse number 12. Speak unto the children of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes aside and commits a trespass against him, and a man lies with her carnally, and it be hid from the eyes of her husband and kept closed, and she be defiled, and there be no witness against her, and she be not taken in the act. Hear all these things? So they said she was taken in the act, but there's no witness. So that doesn't matter. In order for there to be adultery, you would have to assume she has a husband. So I'm not saying that she didn't have a husband. I'm saying he wasn't there for some reason. So wherever they caught her in the marketplace or whatever, she might have had a reputation. Maybe she was already going through this with her husband. Who knows what the deal was? 
but she was a prime candidate. They threw her down. Her husband wasn't there. The man she committed adultery with wasn't there. So according to the law of Moses, you have to refer to Numbers chapter 5, which is called the law of the Sotal. Now watch what happens. And spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and he'd be jealous of his wife, and she'd be defiled. Or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and he is jealous of his wife, and she'd be not defiled, then shall the man bring his wife unto the priest, and shall bring her an oblation, a tenth part of an ephah of barley of meal. He shall pour oil upon it, put no, uh, nor put frankincense thereon, for it is a meal offering of jealousy, a meal offering memorial, bringing iniquity to the remembrance. Verse number 16, the priest shall bring her near, and set her before Jehovah. The priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel. Very, very cool scripture. The priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel. Because if you read John chapter 7, prior to them getting together and contemplating how to catch him uh, outside of the law, Jesus stands up during the Feast of Tabernacles and says, I am the living water. If any man thirsts, let him come unto me. And out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. This he spake of the Holy Ghost. You can read that in John chapter 7. So he has testified right before they went into concealment to conspire against him that he is the holy water. He is the living water. And he already told us that when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's not me that does the works, but it's the Father in me. So he is a earthen vessel, his body, in which contains the holiness of God, the living water, a.k.a. the holy water. You understand? So that's cool. And then out of the dust, how interesting. We have water and we have dust and we have adultery starting to come together. That is on the floor of the tabernacle slash temple. Remember I had y'all said temple? Because Jesus went to the Mount of Olives right after John chapter 7 and decided to stand in the temple. And inside the temple is where they brought this woman. So now we have the holy water inside an earthen vessel in the temple on the floor where the dust is supposed to be. The priest shall take and put it into the water. The priest shall set the woman before Jehovah and let the hair of the woman's head go loose and put the meal offering, so on and so forth. Uh, and the priest shall have in his hand the water of bitterness. Verse number 19, the priest will cause her to swear and say unto the woman, if uh, no man has lain with you, and if you have not gone aside to uncleanliness, uh, being under thy husband, be free from this water of bitterness that causes the curse. But if you have gone aside, even with your husband, and if you be defiled, and some man has lain with you besides your husband, then the priest will cause the woman to swear an oath of cursing. And the priest will say unto the woman, Jehovah make thee a curse and an oath among the people, when Jehovah does make your thigh to fall away and your belly to swell. So this is supposedly... What would happen when she would drink this water if she was um, if she was guilty of the transgression? And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. Odd place to Amen. <laughs> also, the first place that Amen is found in your Bible. Interesting. Um, and the priest shall write these curses in a book, and he shall blot them out in the water of bitterness. He shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that causes the curse. So there's something he has to write. And the water that causes the curse shall enter into her and become bitter. And the priest will take the meal offering of jealousy. Verse number 26, the priest will take a handful of meal offering. She has to drink the water. Verse 27, when he has made her drink the water, it shall come to pass. If she be defiled and have committed trespass against her husband, the water causes the curse shall enter into become bitter. Her body, her body shall swell. Her thighs shall fall away. The woman shall be a curse among the people. Verse 28, if the woman is not defiled, but clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive seed or conceive a child. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something that I don't know uh, how many people agree with or how many people would, would, would say, but I want you to contemplate it in light of the God that we serve. So here's the deal. There is no written history. There is no testimony in all of the years of Israel 
save one off-the-wall story from a rabbi named um, Rashi, I think. Um, a very odd story that I can tell you since it doesn't really make sense with the, with the deal. But anyway, it's, it's obviously kind of a, a parable, but there is no actual written historical testimony that this ever happened. That any woman ever drank that water and had her belly swell and her thigh fall off. Which sounds a little outlandish anyway. That this water has the ability to do that, but only if you had intercourse with somebody other than your husband. How does that work? Uh, I know you would call it, well, it's miraculous. Well, that's a weird miracle. So whatever. It, doesn't, it, does, it sounds a little bit outlandish. Never happened in the history of all Judaism. There's no account of it ever happening. If the woman were guilty and didn't go through this punishment, the way that she would be found out and the worst thing that could happen to her is that she would be pregnant. And it might not make sense to her husband, depending on their relationship, that she's pregnant at the time she's pregnant. But God says, if you drink this water and you're not guilty, the, the payment and the reward is that you'll, you'll, you'll be pregnant. So it almost seems like this little catch-22, where God, just like we read in Deuteronomy, listen, a lot of people got stoned to death in Israel. They certainly did. But could you imagine... Look what God did where we read in Leviticus. He said, out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. And then he said, and the witnesses will take up the first stone and put the person to death. (sighs) Listen, I see somebody commit a sin like adultery or something to that level where it's definitely not good. But with the exception of witnessing them, like, I mean, there's a few things you can witness that you would want to put your hands around somebody's neck and kill them yourself. I understand that. But there are so many things in the Old Testament that a person could be stoned to death for that are just minor. So when God says, out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, well, that's easy to do. I saw it. I saw it. Then he says, and you have to kill the person. Not so easy. I think, and I could be wrong, that in the back of God's mind, so to speak, he was hoping that they wouldn't do this. Like, this is pretty... We have to have law, and it has to be in a certain way because it's the Old Testament and Jesus hasn't come, and that's a whole other sermon. But at the same time, it doesn't... I mean, how many of you could do that? Knowing that if you witness against this person, you're going to throw a stone at their head along with your friends until they die from getting hit with rocks. I couldn't do that. I don't think very many people would want to do that. It shows the kind of people God was dealing with. How many of you think that God is looking down on a patriarchal society where men have all the power? Look at, look at the way that you view Islam right now, the plight of Islamic women. If you haven't ever seen or read anything about that, get your, hand, your head out of the sand, so to speak, no pun intended, and read something. Pay attention. The men can run rampant over the women over there. They have no rights. They have no ability to speak up. They are like not human beings. No freedom. Can you imagine a life where you as a man or a woman, zero freedom? Anybody can do anything they want to you. You know, they have to have, for a woman over there to claim that she was raped, five people have to have seen it. And then they still have to decide. And if she even says that something happened without that many people willing to stand up, she gets stoned to death still today or head chopped off or whatever. And it happens. I could go on and on about the things that happen over there. I'm just telling you, the way you look at them now is kind of the way that this was. It wasn't how God meant for it to be, 
But when it got set up that way, that, that's human nature, I guess. And so the women had no rights. The men ran around crazy. They got to do whatever they want. God knows that if a man raped a woman and she couldn't, didn't have a voice and they got caught, then it would just have to be adultery. And God's not really wanting that woman to get stoned to death because she got raped. Doesn't make any sense. And or if the woman is put down to such a degree and she has no voice and some man takes advantage of her, even if it's not whatever, there's so many ways and there are bad ways that it could happen. But it almost seems to me like God put a law in place that if she did end up pregnant, it exonerated her. Does it seem that way? And that just maybe I'm completely wrong, but I'm trying to tell you God's heart has always been graceful and he is wise beyond why his ways are higher. His thoughts are higher. And listen, that comes into your life as well. Some of the things that look like they're meant for bad, God uses for good. Remember a little scripture where the Bible tells us God uses all things to good for those that love God and are called to his prayer. It's kind of on that level. So they throw her down and they claim that the law of Moses says to stone her. We just read where that's completely false and they should have had to refer to Numbers chapter 5. I want to take you to another scripture in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 17, 13 says, O Jehovah, the hope of Israel. When you look up that word hope in Hebrew, it is not hope. It is the word mikvah. Mikvah in Hebrew means what we would call baptismal tank. And uh, in Israel, when they, would, when they would make a mikvah, which is a baptism, they would have to fill it with what they called mayim hayim, which is living water. Remember Jesus in John chapter 7 stood up and said, I am the living water. So here we have the mikvah of Israel, which refers to Jesus Christ in verse 13. All those that forsake thee shall be put to shame. And those that depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken Jehovah, the fountain of living waters. According to Jewish oral tradition and according to the Talmudic writing, which is the way that the priest would carry out the ordinances of the Bible, whenever a woman that was supposedly uh, caught in adultery would be brought before the priest and her husband didn't know for sure or people didn't know for sure, but they were just jealous and thought maybe they would be brought before her and he would perform the sotah that we read about in Numbers chapter five. But before he would perform the sotah in Numbers chapter five, he would kneel down in the tabernacle or in the temple and he would first write the offense with his finger in the dust of the temple floor. Then he would write the name of Yahweh in the dust of the temple floor. And then he would write the name of the two or three witnesses that were coming against this woman because of the sin of adultery and all of those, all of that dust that he wrote in, he would then gather up a handful and put it in the water the way that we read in Numbers chapter five. And that would become the bitter waters that she would have to drink. So here they are bringing this woman before him who's supposedly caught in adultery. And they say she should be stoned to death according to the law of Moses. And he says, no, I know the law better than you. And I don't see her I don't see her partner in this affair. I don't see her husband. And you're not giving me two or three witnesses. So they're saying, what do you say? Stone her. What do you say? Stone her. Now, all that John chapter seven says, and they're trying to catch him not working and operating within the law. So do you think they knew that really he shouldn't stone her, but he was going to cave under the pressure so that he could appear to be very Jewish to all of his followers and do what Moses said to do, which was the main guy they followed at the time. But they knew in the back of their heads, if he stones her, he's working outside of the law. Because remember, my friends, these are scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees. Do you know what that means? Scribe means 
Their job was to write the Bible. They are the scribes. They've translated every single scripture hundreds of times. The Pharisees and Sadducees have legal dictation over that law, especially the Torah, the first five books. So they know it backwards and forwards. And I am willing to bet, since there is no written history of this ever happening, that the law of the Sotah in Numbers chapter 5 was a lesser known law. So they got together in John chapter 7 and said, here's what we can do. Almost nobody knows about this Sotah thing. So we throw this woman down in the temple while he's surrounded by all of his followers, and we say she's caught in the act. Moses says, stone her, what do you say? And probably, this is where the probably comes in, probably he'll stone her to death. And then probably everybody will leave him. We can probably make a case. We can probably indict him. And we might be able to put him to the death penalty. So you think they probably knew. They threw her down, but Jesus was up to the task, as always. So he kneels down on the temple floor and he writes in the dust the Hebrew word, I think it's noaf, and I'm not sure how to pronounce it, for adultery. Then he writes the name of Yahweh, his father. And then he stands up, and as soon as he kneels down and begins to write in the dust, they understand what he's doing. He's preparing the dust for the bitter waters. You say she's caught in adultery. You're not giving me a witness. You're not giving me a partner that she slept with. This is the law, so tall. And he writes it, and he writes that name. Then he stands up and he says, Now let him who is without sin... Cast the first stone. According to Deuteronomy, that's what they're supposed to do. But they all decide, man, we just got caught. And we are false witnesses. So if we pick up a stone, we're condemning ourselves to death. But then it says, he knelt down again and he wrote again. What did he write the second time? I pledge you, Jeremiah 17, 13. All those that forsake thee shall be put to shame. What happened to these guys? They got shamed. And they that depart from me shall be written in the earth. So the second time he kneels down and writes their names, oldest to youngest, which is according to Jewish tradition, the way that you're supposed to do it. How do I know that for sure? Because you read in John chapter 8 and what immediately happens. They departed from him, the Bible says, youngest to the oldest. So I think it's very likely that that's what he wrote in the dust. I think it follows the Hebraic law of Numbers chapter 5, it follows the oral tradition, it follows the prophecy of Jeremiah chapter 17, and it follows with their reactions, follows with Deuteronomy. It's a lot of scripture to go into that, and I think we have a good case for what he wrote when he knelt down and wrote. And that's all good and cool and nice, and maybe you, it'd be cool to tell people, hey, we have an idea what he wrote in the, in the dust, and that's, that's good. <clears throat> but how does that help us? And we've had this teaching for a long time. I've always had trouble trying to figure out when to preach it because I'm not sure how it helps. And then it kind of hit me this week. Probably is how it helps. What does that mean? They brought this woman and they had absolutely zero care for her life and her well-being. And they are proclaiming to the world that they are God's people, the Jewish people, the chosen people. They follow the one true God. They're throwing this woman down at his feet. They don't even care what happens. They're just trying to catch him slipping up. And they did it all based on a probably. They put her life on the line based on probably what would happen. 
Some of them thought he would probably stone her and they didn't care. I'm sure others thought he probably wouldn't and they didn't care either. They were hoping that he would probably slip up, but he didn't. But everything that they wanted to happen, all the lives involved, everything involved was based on probably. And that is disgusting. And that is sad. And it happens every day. Think about the debates we have in this world right now. Think about abortion. Look at abortion. Millions and millions and tens of millions of babies every year die because of an argument of probably. Science isn't sure, but this many weeks in, probably not a person. We don't know, but probably not. Really, that is sad. As Christians, hopefully we care less what science thinks because the Bible says he knows the hairs on our head before we are even in our mother's womb. In Christianity, what we deal with is when does that embryo become a living soul? At what point and what trimester does God breathe the breath of life? And if you cannot answer that question, then you cannot faithfully support abortion. You can only say, probably, probably not yet. You're going to end a life on probably? You just saw these guys and you thought it was disgusting. And we're going to stand up as Christians and Americans and now I'm saying in this room, but there are even a faction, a big faction of Christians that will stand up and support that based on, on probably. Probably. It's sad. But look at what we do every single day. We drive down the road. We stop at the stoplight. We see the homeless guy with his cardboard sign. And we go, he'll probably use my money to get alcohol. Probably. He probably has made enough money today. Probably. You know what? That guy's probably not even homeless. He probably makes more money than I do. That happens. It does happen. He probably won't care. It probably won't make a difference. And we justify our actions of not reaching out in godly love based on probably. Now, I'm not saying, and I understand that there are going to be people in this room and you're well within your right to say, I don't believe in giving homeless people money. Okay, I understand that. I'm not, I'm not of that faction, but I understand it because I used to be. And I don't, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. But if you're sitting at the stoplight and he's there and you're having a debate within your own head, if you're able to find a place to go buy some food or a gift card and come back and give it to him, by all means. If not, you have to drive away based on probably. Or if you literally don't have any money, you don't have any money. C.S. Lewis said, this is not a sermon about homeless people, but I'm just using an example. Something to the effect that I'm not sure when I get to heaven if I will be judged or rewarded in, in any way for the times that I stopped and gave a homeless man some money. I don't know. But I'm pretty sure I'll be judged for the times that I didn't. That's what he thought. So maybe that's true, maybe it's not, but I like the perspective. Each and every day you go to work. I hope not, but the days you do go to work. Uh, each and every day you leave your house, for the most part, you go to Starbucks, you go to the grocery store, you go to work, wherever you go, and we run into situations every single day. Now, I'm not saying 
that God intends for us to witness and tell every person that we pass on the street or in the store every single day about Jesus Christ. God knows you can never get anything done. Okay, so that's not my argument. But there are times when you have had opportunities and you have missed that opportunity, you knew that it was an opportunity. There are times in your life where you walk away and you go, dang, I should have done that. I should have prayed for that person. I should have told that person about the Lord. I had an opportunity right there. I was in a conversation and I didn't do it. Why didn't you do it? Well, right when you get the guts up, right as I walk up to whoever I'm going to walk up to, I'll walk up to Lesbian and I want to tell her about the Lord. And then I'm just in my head all of a sudden, something starts going. She probably, she's probably already heard it. She's an American. She's probably already heard the gospel. I, she probably won't care. It probably won't do any good. She's probably going to think I'm an idiot. She's probably going to laugh at me. She's probably going to think it's weird. Probably, 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 probably. And we miss our opportunities based on probably. And I hate that. I hate that reality. Look at your relationship with your husband or your wife. The times where you maybe could have gone and made something right. The times, opportunities where you had to do something nice. And it's something stops you because you think she probably won't care. It probably won't work. It's probably not necessary. Relationships with your friends. Every time you have the opportunity, I do it as a pastor. I have people call me every day, every day with stuff going on. And I do my best to help. And if I hang up the phone with you without praying for you, I'll, I can guarantee you what's going through my head is they probably don't want to. It probably won't make a difference. It probably, probably, probably blah. And I did it this week to somebody. And I think they called me about prayer, actually. I think it was Don, I think. And he was talking about how he was, no, he was at my house first, talking about how he, he doesn't want to walk away from people or hang up with people without praying for him. Then he called me later about something, and I hung up without praying for him. And I knew it before we hung up. And I said, oh, I, we, it's probably okay. Because we just talked about it. Stupid. Probably. Based on probably. You know what I mean? I don't know what I'm trying to say. It just seems to me like we... We live... Uh, we live on a planet... Sorry. Starting to get emotional. Where... Um, God, we're all just the same. We're all human beings. We're all made out of the same DNA. And we make it so ridiculously hard on each other. We live on a planet where we're all, for the most part, dealing with the same things. I mean, there's different details, but it's all the same emotions. We're anxious. We're scared. We're vulnerable. We're needy. Uh, sometimes we're good. I mean, we're happy, we're loving, we're energetic, we're full. We're, we're all dealing with the same things. And it's like we encounter people and we forget that they're just like us. We want help, but we're so slow to help other people. We don't even admit most of the time that we need help, but you know that you need help. And if you know that you need help, you should know that the person next to you needs help too. Everybody needs help. We live on this planet and we figure out ways in which we should judge people, hate people, scorn people. Uh, get away from people, spend time away from people, forget about people. It goes all the way from the little bitty like sphere of influence that you have all the way to a global influence. 
Countries of people hate other countries of people. Why does that happen? We all are the same. We have the same body parts. We have the same trials and tribulations. We have the same desires for the most part. We at the base level, we are all the same. How is it that we've allowed the devil to put it in our heads that it's okay to hate? It's okay to judge. It's okay to miss opportunities. It's okay. It's okay to sweep people to the side. It's okay to forget about their problems. It's okay not to do something because they probably wouldn't do it for me or they probably don't care that I didn't do it or they probably don't need it. And you only have so many days on this planet with which you have to help people. And we miss so many of those days and so many of those opportunities based on probably. That's sad. Our worship team can go ahead and come up. That's sad. Our worship team's not coming up. There they go. (laughs) Jesus never did, never did probably, did he? He never missed an opportunity. Somebody came to him. He either helped them or taught them how to help themselves. Jesus never skirted around opportunities. Jesus never tried to avoid people. Jesus walked right into the midst of it. And he said, forget about probably. He didn't say, you know what, I'm not going to go to the temple and teach today because they're probably going to try to kill me. He could have said that. He'd have been right. His disciples tried to convince him that he shouldn't go. So he said, okay, I won't go. You go ahead of me. And then he showed up right after. They're like, what? He was like, I don't do probably. These people need help. They're going to kill you. Yeah, but they need help. If I don't help them, who's going to help them? I'm sure Jesus understood we're all going to die one day. Be good to die helping people. Personally, it's I'm sure he knew it better than we do, but it's just it's not really the end. It's the beginning of something better. And maybe on our way out, if we help the right people, they'll help more people and more people will end up where they're supposed to be. That's a good probably. That could happen. You know how many times the word probably appears in the Bible? Two eggs. Checked four or five translations. The newer ones that use more modern English words. Still zero. No probabilities in the Bible. It's all straight up. Never miss an opportunity. I don't know about you. Uh, I definitely fall guilty to this word. And I, I don't know if that helped your life at all or helped you at all. But I know for me personally, I want to leave here today and I want to do better with probably. I want to get it as far away from me as possible. Probably is so selfish. So selfish. The only thing it can do is help you feel better about yourself. You know, when you walk up to somebody to help them, there's that probably they won't appreciate it. Well, so what? What does that mean? That means that that means that you just got taken advantage of, sort of. And we're so worried about that that we'll miss our opportunities. 
Because if I just walk away from this person and I don't say anything to them, everything will be the same. I'll be fine. They can't take advantage of me if I don't talk to them, right? We're so worried as human beings about losing, about being used, about being taken advantage of, about somebody trampling over us, walking over us like a, like a welcome mat or however people put it. I've been told that a lot. You get that a lot in Christianity because you want to make sure that you love people and you turn the other cheek, but you can also get a bullwhip and run into the temple and, and turn over tables and all that kind of stuff. And, and, that, and that's true in a general statement, but there was a reason why he did that. And I don't want to, I don't want us to, to devalue ourselves as human beings, but I don't want us to be so strong in who we are that nobody will ever take advantage of us, that we will live this life and we will do everything right and we will stand strong and we will be strong people and nobody will use me. Nobody will ever get the best. Nobody will ever get one over on me because I'm confident and I know who I am because that's going to lead to probably not doing everything you could do. Now, tell me the honest truth. Is that how Jesus worked? Because I thought I remember the Bible saying he could have called down 10,000 angels and shown everybody how strong he was. But instead, he hung there bleeding on the cross. They trampled him pretty good. Careful when you decide you want to be Christ-like. Careful when you tell God, transform me in the image of your dear son. Because you're just thinking about his resurrection. When you say that you're thinking about his long, beautiful hair that you see in the pictures, his eight pack, whatever it is, that was far, far from reality. You're thinking about him petting lambs and having authority and all these things. And God knows he wants to give you that same authority. But to truly be Christ like. You're going to have to be willing to get down on your knees and wash somebody's feet. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to have to be willing to serve. You're going to have to be willing to lose. You understand that? You're going to have to be willing to lose. Do I know that for sure? Those that lose their life will find it. Those that find their lives will lose it. God is not about I am number one t-shirt. He didn't have to win. He's willing to lose if that means you can win. You've got to be willing to lose if that means other people can win. You're not the kind of dad that would beat your six-year-old son at a basketball game one-on-one, are you? Why would you let that little kid win? Because you care more about the smile on his face than the pride of your winning. You might not even be thinking about how big you're going to smile when you see him smile for his win. That's how you got to treat everybody. That's how God treated us. Got to be willing to lose got to be willing to serve, got to be willing to listen, got to be vulnerable enough to love.